while Oscar's getting ready, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll introduce him. Uh, this is such a, a kind of sweet symmetry because last night in this room, I gave a Dharma talk to SPMG and Oscar introduced me at that, at that event. And, and just as it, it happens, uh, here we are. Uh, so I'm very pleased to be able to welcome my Dharma brother, Oscar Valaguer. Um, Oscar and I have been practicing together for a long time. Uh, we go back to the uh, early days of uh, Sacramento Buddhist Meditation Group, uh, which uh, in the early days met in a rented space on Folsom Boulevard. And I'm sure that's where I met Oscar. Um, can't recall exactly which year, what year it was, but it was in the 90s sometime. And um, we have practiced in so many different places, you know, since then. And uh, uh, Oscar is a, a student of Reb Anderson, as am I. And uh, we've practiced together uh, with him in um, the January intensive at Green Gulch Farm and also um, at his practice place called No Abode in Marin County. Many times, taken many trips down there. Um, one, one fond memory too is uh, working with Oscar and a couple other people in the Sangha on the election retreat in 2018 where we went down to the Central Valley and sat in a walnut orchard and slept in a walnut orchard and, um, and did uh, campaign work for Oh, for a now indicted congressman. Oops. <laughs> Innocent until proven guilty. Innocent until proven guilty. But anyway, Oscar and I go back a long way, and he's a, I know him to be a, a very sincere uh, practitioner and a person of a devotion to his teacher. Uh, one, uh, another aspect of uh, Oscar's practice is for... Uh, many years, uh, he has been uh, called the Jisha, uh, the attendant, the personal attendant of his teacher, Reb Anderson, at uh, No Abode um, Sitting Place. Um, and uh, so on those monthly sittings, until, of course, COVID, Oscar was uh, attending on his teacher on, the, on those monthly uh, sittings for, for several years. Yeah, several years. Um, and we share that in common because I, I've had the opportunity to do that with my teacher as well, the same teacher. So anyway, so many so many things I could say, but uh, let me turn it over to Oscar and welcome and uh, thank you for being such a good friend of this Sangha. Thank you very much, Jim, for that lovely, um, sweet introduction. Um I forgot to bring a timer. Larry, could you let me know how I'm doing when it's getting time to close to... Oh, thank you. All right, I'm set. I'm starting right at 8. Well, here we are. Um, so I, I need to apologize. Unsurpassed, penetrating, and perfect Dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas. 
having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept, I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. So, I'm so sorry, I need to start off with an apology. I'm going to basically read my talk tonight, and but I'll pretend not to, and if you can pretend not to, to with me, um, it'll be great. Uh, looking back, you know, over these years of practice, it's embarrassing how long I've practiced and how little I've learned about the Dharma, but here we are. Oh, well. Um, a lot has happened, but it, but um, really there was very little intentionality about it on my part. I, I was really lucky. Um, in retrospect, there does seem to have been a thread flowing through my life as these events transpired, uh, a persistent sense that um, there was something to be discovered and it was my job to do it. So I'd like to start with some personal history just to tell you where I'm coming from and then mention a few influences on my practice and uh, milestones that I've passed along the way. Since this is a Buddhist um, gathering, I'll start off with a story about suffering. it was a dream I had, a terrible dream, when I was about eight years old. Uh, the dream was that there was a train wreck and that the cars were scattered about on the ground in flames and people were dying in the fire. And I was running away as fast as I could. And I didn't want to run away because I knew that uh, I felt that I should stay and do whatever I could to help, but I was so horrified and traumatized that I couldn't stop. My legs just ran as fast as they could carry me to get away. That was the dream, kind of a nightmare, really. And uh, although I normally forget dreams quickly, like most people, this one is vivid to me after 70 years. Thinking about it now, or the way I've come to think about it, is kind of uh, a valuable dream because I think it it, uh, was an allegory for uh, my turning away from parts of myself that were um, too painful to bear at at that point. And also, I've come to think of it as a kind of compassionate gift from my unconscious uh, to remind me, the future me, that um, that event had happened and that um, there was a way back um, to the time of wholeness before that train wreck. And that's been part of my practice. Um, also around those years, I had this experience, this unusual experience of being in bed, kind of in a hypnopompic state, half, you know, sleep, half, half dozing. And this strange feeling would arise, a feeling which I, for many years, called fullness. 
sense of fullness. And I, I was interested in this feeling. I wanted to know more about it. But I, it always escaped me. It always uh, uh, went back to the margins of my consciousness whenever I turned to try to investigate it. Um, and over the years, that be, became less and less. But once in a while, even today, I'll have a hint of that. And now, uh, the way I think about it is um, wholeness or intimacy. Everything that's the objects of my internal and external world fitting together without any gap between. Just that feeling of wholeness, massiness, solidity, like the space between things is embracing the, the ostensible objects. Um, and then there was the apple, apple seed episode. So these, these are stories from my childhood, which I look back at now as being kind of the seedbed for what came after. I was eating an apple in our kitchen, and I got to the core, and there were the seeds. And, uh, and it just came to me that these seeds were the fruit of thousands of generations of apple trees before. And these seeds bore the potential for every apple tree <laughs> that would ever come after. And, um, and I had this feeling these were like infinitely precious seeds, sacred seeds. And I knew it was mad, but I couldn't throw them in the bin. So I carefully put them, I was about 14. I carefully put them in some tin foil and folded it all up and dropped it into a decorative vase, kind of a personal seed bank. And, um, and thinking about it now, it occurs to me that um, maybe people who are, you know, passionately anti-abortion, Maybe they have that same sense of the sacredness, the sacred potential of um, the unborn, of the seed. Sometime in high school, I stumbled across um, um, uh, Zen and the Art of Archery. Uh, maybe you've heard about that book. Um, it was about Zen and the art of archery, the Zen practice of archery, uh, with photographs, a uh, personal first-hand account of, a, of an archer who, uh, who tried to, um, who, a, West, a Western guy, a German, who um, followed this way and his attempts to do as his teacher told him, his attempts, and his attempts trick us to, to, uh, to game the system, as it were, to game the instructions he had received. And his teacher, and it worked, seemed to be working fine, but his teacher caught on immediately, and he was banished for a long time from the studio. It was a hard thing for him to get back. Anyway, this really impressed me. And uh, although I didn't follow up, and I didn't look for other books for Zen, about Zen, but um, 
but it put Zen in my frame of reference from then on. Um, I grew up in New York City, and I, I feel um, I feel grateful for my exposure to the cosmopolitan influences uh, in my childhood. But also, and also, I was very fortunate in that my grandparents, my grandparents came from the old country, Italy, both of them. My grandfather was a, uh, a ladies' tailor. Um, they retired to a place in the country on Long Island in a rural setting. And I spent, I got to spend my summers there as a child, several summers. And uh, there was woods, there was a bay teeming with fish and uh, other uh, marine life. There was an ocean with a pounding surf, all within walking or bicycling distance. And I explored and fished and crabbed and clammed and uh, swam. Um, And it was great experience for a child young boy, especially perhaps, and um, and I conceived a love of nature there, which has been an element of my life ever since. And also I experienced grief and loss because uh, the woods that were my kingdom were gradually dis- demolished as that housing tract developed over the years. So experiences like that, I can see how, how um, you know, how they, how they formed what I call myself today. In college, I, an, I encountered cannabis and psychedelics. Um, uh, I heard somewhere about Indra's net, and I was very taken by that image, that visionary image. I, I really... It made complete sense to me right from the get-go. I'd never read, read Huxley's book, but I think my doors of perception were cracked open at that time. Um, and so my outlook on life started to change. Uh, with one thing and another, I lost interest in academic studies, and I dropped out of college. I had been majoring in theater arts, excuse me, minoring in theater arts and and stagecraft. And I got a job at ABC Paint Studio, uh, TV Paint Studio, and uh, worked there for a while. But uh, too soon, I was drafted into the Army. This was uh, on the run-up to Vietnam War. And... uh, served uh, in in the Army, in the artillery, mostly at Fort Lewis, Washington, Um, and thankfully was never deployed overseas. At that time, while I was in the Army, I read uh, one of Alan, I think several of Alan Watts' books, but the one I remember is uh, The Way of Zen. And I don't really... uh, not clear to me what I got out of that book, except one thing, and that was the way uh, that words are terms, as he put it, terms. Um, the same root as uh, terminate or um, um, uh, um, terminal, 
terminus, endpoints. Words are the endpoints of a concept, the extremes. Um, and so they can never capture the wholeness of, uh, of actual experience, the complexity of actual experience. They're only ever talking about one thing, one endpoint. Uh, and because we focus our minds on words, all the rest is kind of banished if we're not careful. Um, there's a funny memory from those days. I guess I had, you know, I had Zen in my mind or some kind of Buddhism in my mind. I remember standing in the parking lot of the battalion headquarters and uh, it was late in the afternoon and there was an orange sun shining on the bough of a pine tree. And I was thinking, and I thought it was, you know, one of those kind of situational experiences. And uh, I thought, I really, I should be, I should be enlightened by the time I'm 30. (laughs) It really seemed reasonable at the time, you know, it didn't seem like that much of a stretch, but it didn't happen. In retrospect, I, I think I kind of missed that I was enlightened right then, but I wasn't prepared to realize it. So after discharge, I returned to New York. Uh, I got a loft in East Village, and I worked for about three years as a theatrical technician in the city and uh, adjoining states and cities. Didn't have any kind of real spiritual practice during that time. Uh, Rock and roll and other things were more like where I spent my time. But I did use... um, uh, Wilhelm's I Ching. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that book. Um, and uh, I, I, for divination. Uh, I didn't know whether to believe it or not, but it had a forward by Carl Jung that really kind of, you know, brought it into a Western perspective and, and made it seem like, yeah, that was a good thing to be doing. And I liked reading it. I liked the Taoist take on stuff. Um, so um, it was, you know, it really kind of provided a foundation for for thinking in cyclic terms and everything turning over, everything changing, the book of changes. Um, and I had some drug experiences at that time that were, I think, notable. Um, they continue to sort of open me to the concept of a different reality and a glorious one and a sacred one, really. Uh, In 1967, I was backpacking um, uh, off trail to a remote lake in the Catskills, small lake that I found on a map and uh, with some vague idea of doing a vision quest. And while I was there, I found a commitment to protecting the environment and healing the environment. At that time, a lot of people were talking about the dangers of nuclear power. It was in my mind how the byproducts would be deadly for 10,000 years. And that that seemed really wrong to me uh, when there was so much beautiful stuff that 
needed to stay alive. And also on that trip, um, I caught a fish to eat, um, which I often did. I carried a hook and a little line, and if there were fish, I would try to catch one. And I did catch a fish, although it was hard to find bait. It was really early in the spring. Um, but I knew they were there, and I knew they were hungry. And the instant my hook hit the water, I had a beautiful perch. You know, they're beautiful fish, yellow, brown, dark bands, orange fins. I'd been watching them for a while. And I got ready to kill it. Um, and it occurred to me that I was enjoying it much more alive <clears throat> than I would eating it. So I threw it back, and um, that's how I became a vegetarian. Oh, darn, I forgot something. So in 1968, I was um, camping uh, near a swimming hole in Woodstock, New York. This is one year before the big Woodstock festival. And uh, there were other people there. And sitting around the campfire uh, at night with a bunch of mostly strangers, uh, a beautiful man sitting next to me, a young man, with black curly hair, um, who was a an avatar of Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, gave me a copy, a used thumbed copy of Paul Reps's Zen Flesh, Zen Bones. Um, and I meant to bring a copy tonight, so I could, in case any of you hadn't seen the ox herding pictures, which are in it. You could see it because it's my favorite version of the oxidating pictures even now. Uh, so that was my introduction to uh, ancestors Zen. Um, and, um, and for many, many years, uh, and to this day, I have the same version, not the same copy, but the same edition. Uh, I still will look through it because uh, you can just open it anywhere and read a wonderful story from one from the uh, gateless gate. Uh, after that, I spent some time traveling with a commune uh, to various rock uh, concerts. I got ill, I got well, I drove cross country with fraternity brothers from college to San Francisco to drop acid at a wedding. I fell in love again. I lived in Bloomington, Indiana for a year. Then I lived, we lived in Vermont for a year. And then we uh, tired of another, with another winter in Vermont looming, we traveled, we came to Monterey, California, where I lived for 10 years. And uh, in Monterey, I went to MPC, Monterey Peninsula College on the GI Bill, beat working. And um, I took pretty much all the natural science courses that they had there, geology, ecology, botany, chemistry, um, uh, and, and I, I learned that everything alive and not alive influences everything else and is affected by everything else. And that's the process that creates this 
thin film of life on the surface of the planet and in the oceans. And I learned also that all the elements of life, the uh, atoms that make up an organism, carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen, all of the rest, they're all cycling through organisms and in different um, in different chemical species, compounds, through organisms into the atmosphere and the ocean and the earth. And these cycles can take place over a period of hours or millennia and do and always are. And that individual organisms and uh, species and um, continents are always changing, uh, turning into something else in hours or years or millennia. And then it's uh, like a cosmic kaleidoscope, everything changing, turning into the next thing in beautiful patterns, never repeating the same thing. And this impressed me very much. I um, I went to UC Santa Cruz, finished up my uh, degree there. Uh, I had been working at a local, uh, a regional agency doing water quality work in order to minimize the number of times a week I had to travel to Santa Cruz. And uh, eventually I was head of that program and was representing it in Sacramento to the State Water Resources Control Board. And uh, it was an opportune time. I got offered a job um, here in Sacramento with the Water Board and I came here in 92. And, um, And that was my career. Um, here, uh, I think it was in 92, maybe 93, I started going where I met, where Jim and I met, to uh, SBMG, and was off and on, uh, more or less a regular, uh, increasingly so over the years. Uh, I met Buddhist teachers and Buddhist teachings, I met my teacher, Reb, went to a number of retreats, as Jim has pointed out. Um, and, uh, and I took Jukai with Reb in 1982. No, excuse me, in uh, 2012. So uh, I would like to ask you, with your permission, I would like to tell you about one of the influences, um, my Zen influences, uh, and that's art, Zen art, Oriental art, but primarily Zen-specific art. Uh, I developed, and Anthony is going to help me, 
if you would show the first slide, Anthony, number one. I developed an early interest in uh, Japanese art. Don't ask me how. It was one of the things that um, just happened in my life, like finding a copy of a Zen book in my local, little local library. This is a, um, this is a drawing I did in high school. I still have it because it was published in the high school arts magazine. Um, and I just show it, it's, it's a, to show that there was, to prove to you that at an early age, I was interested in Japanese art. Uh, and this was my attempt. Um, thank you, Anthony. Next slide, please. But um, there are better examples. Um, this is a classical Japanese, um, influenced by the Chinese, of course, uh, landscape. Um, it's, um, I've always loved these landscapes, but it took me a long time to realize that they visually represent the intimacy that I felt as a child that sense of wholeness, of many elements. And could we see the next slide, please? Oscar, is that your art? This is not my art. <laughs> this is a, a detail from that same painting. Look at these elements. These are jagged mountains pointing up to the sky. These are cascades coming down through chasms. It's a tremendously dynamic picture, and yet there's a sense of deep harmony. Every element is completely representing itself and is completely in concert with every other element. That little, that little mountain temple on the left is just completely itself, but is in perfect communion, I'll say, visually, with all the other elements of the painting. This is how I see it. It's just full. There's no gaps in this painting. So um, there's a lot of paintings like this, and, and Oriental art is known for this approach. And you can read a lot of learned treatises about the technical means to achieve it. But um, I, there's a whole different genre of, uh, of uh, explicitly Zen paintings. Next slide, please. Um, this painting is, a, is very famous. It's from the uh, 15th century, an early painting. Uh, it's called Catching a Catfish with a Gourd. It's a national treasure, famous painting. Um, and it shows a man doing what the title suggests. Next slide, please. Here's a, a detail. Uh, you can see he's, he's quite a doofusy looking fellow and he's shoving the gourd towards the catfish, trying to catch the catfish 
with the gourd. What the hell does he think he's doing? Uh, next slide. But you can see he's he's serious. He's determined. He doesn't know how he's going to use this gourd, but he's heard that this is the way, and he's pushing it out there just to see what will happen and uh, doing his best. We know he's not going to catch that catfish. There's no way. But he's making his best effort like a good Zen student. Next slide, please. A ridiculous guy. This is the upper part of that painting. Um, the painting was passed around uh, temples in Kyoto, the five big temples in Kyoto of the time. And uh, 31 monks put down their comments on the painting. And there's 31 chops there. Uh, I should have brought a, a, um, a detail of this because it's interesting to see, like that first guy in the upper right-hand corner, I think he wrote eight lines, eight rows of kanji. The next guy has two kanji. Uh, and if in detail, you can see, almost you can see the personality of each of these monks by the way they, made, they make their kanji. Because the brush is very sensitive both used in calligraphy and, and in painting, very sensitive tool. And it's said, and I think it's true, that you can see the character of the artist and what he was feeling at that moment with that stroke when he made it. I, I put this through Google and it was word salad. Fish, this, that, the other. Uh, couldn't make heads or tails of it. I think it was a bunch of wise cracks. Um, someday I'll, I'll maybe I'll I'll be able to find out what. But it's interesting. It wasn't just one guy painting a picture. It was that, but it was a communal effort. Um, people were probably writing poetry and wise cracks and I don't know what, but they were having fun with it. I'm sure. So how do you catch a catfish with a gourd? Uh, who hasn't felt that way? The goal is slippery. <laughs> All right, you tell us. The goal is slippery and the tools we have seem not adequate. We, but we do our best with what we've got and hoping to get lucky. Maybe that catfish will jump out onto the bank for him and roll over. <laughs> uh, and there's another, I, I recall a similar saying, catching a golden fish with a straight hook. It's the same idea. How do, you, how do you catch a fish with a straight hook? Well, you can't do it with that old barbed hook that you've been working with your whole life. That's not going to work. So try something else. Uh, next slide, please, Anthony.
This is another famous painting by Hakuin, Zen master Hakuin. It's called Blind Men Crossing a Bridge. There's three blind men. Uh, the bridge is a, uh, a log across a chasm. And you can see that the blind men start out trying to tap their way forward with, a, with their sticks, but they have to give that up they, and, and soon start crawling. Uh, and before long, even take their sandals off. You can see the lead guy is crawling. He's put his, hung his sandals on, on his stick. Neither of them are any good anymore to him at this point. Nothing they have brought with them can help them. They have to feel their way along as best they can. And notice that at the end of the stick, on the log on the left, is a gap. And when they get to it, what are they going to do? They'll have to make a leap, a blind man's leap of faith into what they can't see. I used to hate the brushwork on this. I thought it was crude and harsh. And Hakuin is known for not known for being a gentle teacher, for not, not known for sugarcoating his teachings. But now I really like the brushwork. Uh, he was a great artist. There's a lot of stuff uh, I, I would love to show, uh, but you know. Uh, he was harsh, but he could be mild as milk. You know, Hakuin was the one that was accused of, um, of, of fathering a child. Uh, and uh, all he would say was, uh, um, you know, oh, is that so? Um, next slide, please. So Deska, is that so? So here's a cute guy. This is called Oni in Zazen. Onis are demons. That black squiggly thing in the front is his iron rod that he beats people in hell with. You can't, you know, every Oni is issued an iron rod. They all look different, but they're similar to that. And... Um, uh, look, for some reason, who knows Who knows why, he's decided that he's going to try Zazen. And he's serious. Look at that incense uh, that he's going to use to time the sitting. It's a humongous incense, piece of incense. But uh, you can sense maybe he's got some self-doubt and he's looking around to see if anyone's looking at him, maybe laughing at him. Um, not quite sure what he's doing. And who hasn't felt like this in Zazen? No, it's not. Uh, it's a lesser known painter. This is, uh, this is by the way, uh, uh, 19th century. They started to lighten up a little bit. So I, I, I empathize with this guy. 
I, I kind of uh, relate to him and identify with him because I've uh, often felt, what, what the hell am I doing? I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm pretending to be a Zen student, but I, I can't like stop from thinking about girls or what I'm going to eat for dinner for 10, two minutes. Um, but, <laughs> but he has kind of a determined look on his face too, don't you think? So that, that iron rod, um, Japanese calligraphers love to paint that iron rod because you get to use your deepest, blackest ink and you get to push down on the brush and really show what you got. So there's lots of paintings just of iron rods. Um, but but notice the the, tra- the uh, contrast of that uh, the brushwork and the rod with the way the incense burner that one line with the brush that delineates the incense burner that fine controlled line. So there's a lot of skill in these paintings. Um, and one more, please, Anthony. This is called, thank you, Anthony. This is called Bull, Boy on a Bull. And of course, it's the, um, it's a reference to the famous ox herding pictures. And in Japan, the, the bull is a, well-known symbol for the intractable mind. And the boy, uh, he looks like he's got his hands full. He's belaying the bull around his neck, his own neck, which is a rather desperate maneuver to keep the line tight. Um, And the bull... uh, the wild-eyed bull seems to be having a good time uh, without paying much attention to his rider, which is the nature of such bulls. Um, he's going to go his own way, is the way is the way you sense it. And the boy is doing his best to, to direct the bull. Uh, and in the upper right-hand corner and to the left of the bull's eye and down on the ground, you can see some sakura blossoms, flower blossoms. It's cherry blossom time. It's spring in this painting, and cherry blossoms are falling. Uh, Life is beautiful, but it's short. Um, Great is the matter of birth and death. Don't waste time. Awake, awake. So these are kind of didactic paintings, um, how to be a good Zen student, but they also, they're compassionate. They say, um, hey, it's tough, isn't it? You know, it's tough for all of us. We're all doing this together. And maybe we can have a little fun on the way. Um, 
So that's half of my talk, and the time is up. Yeah, and and the mas the artistic mastery is um, just awesome. So thank you very much. I'll wrap it up there. Uh, if anyone has any feedback or comments, I'd be very interested. Just requesting when you speak, if you could say your name so that the people on Zoom will be able to know who's speaking. Well, well um, I've got the mic. Oh, Barry. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll make a question. My name is Jim. Um, yeah, that last uh, that last uh, painting was really engaging to me, and it, it was it was also like I thought the bull was rather, you know, he wasn't too fierce. You know, he had these fuzzy ears. You know, and so he did look a little like a boyish bull that would go along with the boy. But also I felt like he was, the bull was saying, so you think you're in control. <laughs> right. and, and, and I thought the boy was thinking, yes, I am. <laughs> and so, you know, there you have it, you know, the kind of uh, tension, or not tension, but also, like you say, playfulness, you know, the playfulness of... Uh, I think there's a lot of psychological insight in, in all these paintings. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, that bull is, is playful. He's, he's like, what's next? <laughs> Let's, where are we going next? <laughs> You're going along for the ride. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Oscar. Oh, this is Barry Gambo. Um, thank you. That was a beautiful, inspiring talk. I really appreciate it. Thank you. So a uh, fun fact about the um, Hakuin, is that so, story. I, I can't remember exactly what it was, but I was reading a kind of academic work recently, and I found out the story was actually about Hakuin's great Dharma, actually Hakuin's Dharma grandfather, Muman, Munan. Yeah, and, and Paul Reps like goofed <laughs> and attributed it to Hakuin in his um flesh bones. But I, I always thought that was under because I always thought that was, in fact that story was one of my major inspirations for getting into Zen, you know, that book. And it was it was oh, just the Reps book. Yeah. Well okay. and specifically that story. Oh yes. So you know. And uh but it, it turns out he got the <laughs> the names wrong. Uh well other sources also attributed to Hakuin. I'll see if I can find it and send it to you. Yeah. Uh, cool. Okay. I mean, and, it doesn't matter. It's still a great story, but I just thought it was like kind of yeah, a fun little fact. It, it's good to know. Um, uh, I, I believe that's 16th, 17th century, so it's quite a while ago, yeah. and the story's come down to us. And as you say, it, it, the story stands by itself. Yeah. Um, Oh, thank you, Barry. Yeah, thank you for your talk. I, I'm just going to comment that. Can you say your name? 
Kenny or Kakuon, I knew next to nothing about your personal biography, and I kind of like, you know, I've seen you around for a long time, and I just sort of learned a lot tonight. But you, I'd created this. I'm not going to ask Oscar anything because he's a mystery. You're, you're. <laughs> so it's kind of a game, you know. Where is he coming from? What did he used to do, or what does he do? So, because um, you did give a Dharma talk a few years ago, and you didn't really give any biographical detail. So tonight was a departure. But anyhow, thank you. And uh, that was probably my only comment. So. <laughs> Thank you. Well, you know, I've appreciated it when others have um, covered that kind of material um, in in well, seeking mind talks. So that was my inspiration. Um, thank you very much. Hi, Oscar. That's <laughs> Storley. Uh, <laughs> um, well, yes, I echo what Kenny said. I mean, I've learned so much about you, and I feel so happy to know you in all the different dimensions of your life. And and then to discover, because we had had this exchange before around the artwork of the, the Buddha in, in the Chan Buddhist temple in Japan, and... It was just so exciting to share that with you. And now Hakuin, I mean, I've also studied Hakuin's work, and so it's just so exciting to see the the blind picture that I love so much up there. And uh, we should have a whole workshop or class on, you know, just looking at art. Like I discovered, um, Chinyan is the story about the the servant woman in a in a woman's monastery who finally achieved enlightenment or experienced enlightenment through the bucket uh falling well, open and the yeah, water yeah. falling out and um there's a the classic picture that's in sort of classical Japanese painting but Hakuin painted a whole different image of that same story and just to you know see the different expressions of koans it's uh I don't know Anyway, thank you for enlivening all of this for me. I love, I love that story. I think the poem about it was something like, I know I'll, I'll murder this, but for years I tried every way I could to keep the old bucket together. And one night the bottom fell out. No water in the bucket. No moon in the water. Plop. <laughs> Anyone else? Anyone? Anybody on Zoom? Hi, Millard. Hi, everybody. Oscar. You're Oscar. Well, if, there, if there's no more. Oh, oh Larry. Just, yeah, well. Oh, just I Larry. Feel, I feel, I, feel I, I should say something because... I'm uh, so glad. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I share with Kenny, you know, I, I appreciated hearing the chronology. It's so interesting. I, I mean, I know you, but I don't know you. But And then on the other hand, I, I, I like the mystery, too. 
because there's a there's an aspect of like I don't know if it's intentional or unintentional. It's like it's not really about me and all the chronology. We're studying Zen. It's something other than that. So I, I don't I, you know. So I, I like that mystery aspect as well. Why emphasize ourselves? You know. Mm-hmm. Um, you said something. Uh, maybe it was the last picture about. Uh, you know, life is so short, and uh, so. But why don't we just maybe enjoy it along the way? Do you remember saying? Did I not paraphrase it right? Or uh, well, uh, you know, the Japanese feeling is that, as I understand it, uh, is is um, embodied in the fall of the sakura blossoms. It's so magnificently beautiful. So brief, mm. Um, mm. and and life is hard, but we're in it together, and we can enjoy it and have some fun. And it seems like that's what those paintings were about. There, you know, it was these students trying to catch a catfish with a gourd, a demon trying to be enlightened. Um, people trying impossible things, but um, their attitude is of determination and of doing their best, sincerity. And that's given a lot of, you know, credence, I think, in our tradition. Um, so, so that's what I got. Um, you know, uh, I was quoting what's on our Han, of course, um, and juxtaposing that with the falling sakura, sakura blossoms. I think they go together. In, in my mind, they go together. Does that make any sense? It, it makes sense. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. Um, I will just, well, I'll, I'll tell you after because I watched. Tell us a, now. Well, I watched a movie last night that I had seen once before. The movie is called Lucky. It was released in 2017. It was the, I don't know if you know the actor Harry D. Stanton. Mm-hmm. You don't know him. He's, he, 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 he's played probably 100 roles over 60 years. He's a very famous actor. And he died a week before the movie was released oh. at 91 years old. Wow. And it's very, well, anyway, the the first time I watched it, I, I enjoyed it. The second time I watched it, I said, this is all about Buddhism. It was unbelievable. And there's a scene where he's, he, he had, he had fallen down and he was very, he was worried. He was so worried. He didn't, and the doctor says, there's nothing wrong, but impermanence grabbed him. And he's in a, his local, it's a desert town. And he's in the, the, the saloon there with his five people in the in the bar and he's he's talking about he tells a story about how impermanence impermanence and someone asked him well what do you what do you do about that he, <laughs> big grin comes on his face he says just smile and so you're talking about that uh, blossom falling and smile along the way or enjoy along the way yeah. anyway it seems that's that's what those painters are saying. You know, hey, we can have some fun. 
look, this is a serious thing I'm, talk, I'm talking about. I'm, I'm painting about life and death. Yeah. But look, here's this doofusy guy trying to catch a catfish in a gourd. It's funny. Very good. Thank you so much. I really appreciated your talk. Well, thank you so much. Thank you.